We are going to continue in 1 Timothy this morning, and we'll be starting in chapter 2. Now, if you remember last week, we started 1 Timothy, and this book is written by Paul to a man named Timothy who is overseeing the church at Ephesus. And Paul is instructing Timothy on how to pastor, how to lead this church at Ephesus. So 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are grouped together and called the pastoral epistles. Okay, and this is just uh, Paul's exhortation to Timothy and Titus um, about their roles in leading the church. Uh, This book is useful for church leaders, of course, since it was written to church leaders. Um, It can inform how we deal with uh, disputes, how we deal with uh, different things that might arise in the church. But it's also really good for the congregation to look at these books and see how it can inform how they act, how they um, interact with each other. And so it's good for everybody, really, the leaders and those being led. Uh, The church order is going to be a big theme that we'll see pop up here in chapter 2, and it will really carry us on through the rest of this book. Uh, But Paul is very concerned with how things are done in the church, church order. Uh, Things should be done orderly and not Um, having things done out of place. And we'll go into that in more detail as we progress through the book. In chapters 2 and 3, Paul discusses the public ministry of the church and the roles that the different members should play. And chapter 1 dealt with the ministry of the word. And in this chapter, chapter 2, we'll see Paul place a heavier emphasis on prayer. And these are the two main ministries that a pastor of a church should be involved with. He should devote himself to the word of God and to prayer. And we see that outlined in Acts 6, 4. It says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So those two things are what a pastor should be focused on. With that in mind, let's continue into chapter 2, and we will start in verse 1. Paul writes, therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So he starts off this chapter, and of course there were no chapter distinctions when he was writing it, but um, coming through this letter to Timothy, he says, therefore I exhort first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. The therefore is therefore a reason. It points back to what he was talking about before he said therefore. And that is specifically right here, talking about Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
Um, this is a heavy thing here. Um, he apparently got rid of these guys in some form or fashion, and I really don't know exactly what it means here. Um, but he's saying that you give prayer for all men, not just the guys that you like, not just the guys that are nice to you that is easy for you to be nice to. Um, it is literally all men, even those who may be detracting from the gospel, even detracting from the church, we still pray for them, right? Um, all men. And he says, therefore, I exhort first of all, um, I'll translate that for you. That means, listen up, Timmy. This is important. Okay? He's getting his attention. He's saying, therefore, I exhort first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. Now, in Luke 6.27, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. This is a direct commandment from Jesus to love those who are hard to love. He says, what credit is it to you if you love the people who love you? Even sinners do that. It's not hard to love somebody if they love you, but um, it is a mark of character when you love someone who does not love you, who hates you, or as Jesus says, who spitefully use you. Now, Jesus has called me to love my enemies, pray for those who persecute me. Now, if I don't do that, I'm not living up to the standard that Jesus has set for me. And I understand that it's difficult. I mean, I, I struggle with it myself um, incessantly. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean that you can't do your best to do it. Um, and of course, by ourselves, we couldn't do it, right? Because I am fundamentally evil. Right? There is nothing good in me. But the only good that is in me is there because of Christ in me. Um, it is the mind of Christ. Now, how then, if I'm to be like Christ, can I withhold prayer from anyone else, my enemies included? Christ died for me while I was still an enemy of his. So he didn't just pray for me. He came to the earth. He died a horrible death and was risen for me while I was his enemy. So I really don't think it's too much to ask for us to simply pray for our enemies. Um, Christ did so much more than that for us. Um, who am I to withhold that from, from anyone? For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now he's saying pray for all men, and that includes kings and all who are in authority. Yes, that includes kings, queens, prime ministers, dictators, anyone who is in political authority. Okay. And he's not saying 
you got to like everything that your king or queen or president does. I don't see that in here. You don't have to agree with them. You do have to pray for them. Uh, That is what we are called to do. Uh, It doesn't even mean that you have to like how they are leading your country. And I want to call to mind that Paul is is writing this under Nero, the Roman emperor. Um, He was evil. He was an evil man who was diametrically opposed to the church of Christ. And Paul is still writing, pray for those in authority. And I'm sure that Paul didn't like the way that Nero was leading Rome. Uh, I have no doubt. Uh, Nero was literally burning Christians alive. Uh, So it's not that. But Paul believes that prayer can affect change in government. That is what Paul believes, and that is what he's telling us. He's saying, your prayer makes a difference in government. So pray for those who are leading you and uh, petition God on their behalf, uh, the intercession for these leaders. He says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So now he gives us a reason that we should pray for our leaders. He's saying that he actually believes prayer alters the course of human government. Peter also writes about this same topic. Okay, if you go to 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, and we actually looked at that not long ago on Sunday morning, Peter writes, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as a bondservant of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So both Paul and Peter are saying fundamentally the same thing. And they're saying that our submission to governmental authority allows us to be a good witness to be a good witness for Christ. Paul says that we can live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And Peter says that by doing good, which is submitting, we may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, our actions as Christians, specifically as we submit to our earthly government, those actions speak louder than any words that we can say. When a believer sees your good conduct, that speaks louder to them than any sermon that I can preach or anything that you can say to them. It's our actions. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So this type of living, this submission to earthly government, is pleasing to God. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Peter agrees that one's conduct is useful for leading people to Jesus. 
in his first letter in chapter three, verse one, he says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. It's the way that the wife handles herself. It's the way that she presents herself to her husband that is going to win him over for the Lord. Okay, and this is in the context of a marriage between a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. So when that husband sees his wife submitting to him, respecting him, because that's big to guys, respect. When he sees that conduct of his wife, he can be won over. Peter also agrees that God wants all men to be saved. You see how Peter is echoing exactly what Paul is saying? It's like there was like a common ground between the two. Maybe some influence, some outside influence. Um, Of course, the Holy Spirit is speaking to both of these guys, is inspiring their words, and it all runs along the same lines. So Peter agrees also that God wants all men to be saved. This is the will of God. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's just what Paul is saying here, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, to come to the knowledge that we are sinners, he is the Savior, and he is the only way that we can come to the Father. Uh, That is the truth that we're talking about. Now, why is Paul here hammering on the fact that all men, uh, God desires all men to be saved? Well, I have a, I want to propose a reason Paul might have had for hammering on this fact. We know that he was writing these pastoral epistles to leaders in a church. If leaders in a church have the mindset, well, I'll lead some of these people to Christ. I'll present the gospel to this certain demographic. That may be holding God back from working in a way that he wanted to work in, in that church. But if Paul writes to these leaders and says, hey guys, you need to wake up. You are to present the gospel to all people, regardless of who they are, where they're from, or where they're going. Okay, if that is now the church leader's mindset, I think that would open doors, right? If I'm thinking, well, I'm just going to preach the gospel to college kids because that's really what I know. Um, I was just in college and we get along well. So I'm just going to preach the gospel to them. Well, then that is going to discount a lot of people in our community that could be reached for Christ. So the importance of all men being preached the gospel is presented by Paul. Not just the ones he liked and not just the ones that he thought to be elect, but he scatters the seeds and God provides the increase. Verse five says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He says one God. Now, We know there to be one God in the universe, the true creator, 
the sustainer of all things, that is God the Father, um, in his triune nature. Now, he also says one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What does he mean by this mediator? Well, the mediator would be someone who comes between two parties. Um, And it would be used sometimes to dispute something, to come to a conclusion about a dispute. And it's interesting to me, looking all the way back in the Old Testament, Job, we remember Job, he had everything he loved taken away from him. Um, And Job longed for a mediator between himself and God when he realized that he could never measure up to God's holiness. In Job 9, 32 through 33, we see Job crying out, for he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Here, Job is literally longing for what Christ is for us right now. He realized that he couldn't go to God by himself. Um, His wretchedness was so far from God's holiness that he needed someone to come between him and God, to stretch out their hands and pull them both together. And that is what Jesus does for us and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Job needed someone to lay a hand on God take grasp of his holiness, stretch out his other hand to Job, take grasp of his wretchedness, and bring them together. Okay? That is the picture that we have for this one God and one mediator between God and men. Jesus Christ's arm stretched out on the cross, creating the bridge between God and man. And there's only one. There's not another way. You can't get to the Father any other way but by Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, who gave himself a ransom for all. Verse 6. Leviticus 25, 48 allowed a captive to be redeemed by one of his brothers. Okay, again, we're reaching way back into the law. It allowed a captive to be redeemed by one of his brothers. This can be viewed as a picture of Christ, who became man. And by becoming man, was made like us in all things except for our sin. In becoming our brother, our fellow man, Christ was able to redeem us. And I'm going to spout out some, some support text for you here. Matthew 20, 28, Ephesians 1, 7, 1 Peter 1, 18, and 19. Now, this word ransom here, In the Greek, it implies not merely a ransom, but a substituted or equivalent ransom. The preposition anti 
in the word antilitron implies a reciprocity or a vicarious substitution. Have y'all seen Indiana Jones when he's going onto that pressure pad? There's like that little idol there. He's got his little sack of coins and he pulls the idol and puts the coins on real fast to keep that trap from tripping. That's the same idea that we have here. It is reciprocity. It's a vicarious substitution. Christ swapped our wretchedness for his holiness. Um, And that is what we're seeing here. He said, who gave himself a ransom. He switched our sin for his holiness, a ransom for all to be testified in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And I talked about this a little bit last time uh, I was up here. He said, for which I was appointed. And Acts 9 recounts Paul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And this was instigated by Jesus himself. Jesus literally appointed then Saul to become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Um, So it was not by uh, man's cunningly (laughs) devised fables or anything like that. It was not by the work of man that Saul was converted to Christianity, but it was by the direct uh, instigation of Christ, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Now, this word preacher means a herald or messenger vested with public authority. Now, this could be a person carrying a message from a king, a magistrate, a military commander, or someone else of high importance. Okay, so we carry this connotation of someone delivering a message from royalty, from someone of very high importance. Paul says, this is me. I am the messenger who's carrying this extremely important message from an extremely important, significant person. And in this case, it is God who is sending the message to all of humanity. Um, This is like Paul literally carrying this message of the gospel from God, the king of kings, to us. He says also an apostle. Now, since Paul was chosen by Christ himself, Paul was given this apostolic authority um, by Christ. And I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. He really just kind of lays it out there for Timothy. Um, He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't beat around the bush. He just says, man, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and I'm not lying to you. Okay, so just take my words for what they are and uh, apply them to the church in Ephesus. And this is kind of the type of language that I would expect from someone who has been weathered, from someone who has faced the trials that Paul has faced. Um, And we know that the letters to Timothy were among the last that Paul wrote in his ministry. Um, So by this time, he had been shipwrecked. He'd literally been killed a couple times and uh, snake bitten. He'd he'd been through a lot, okay? Okay. And he had 
come through it by the grace of God, but I'm sure that those trials had a very tangible effect on his life, on his outlook and how he carried himself, I'm sure. We see here that it's also kind of (laughs) directing his writing style. And he just, he really is done with the fluff. And his communication simply just lays it out there. Um, He says, I'm not lying to you, Timmy. Just listen to what I have to say. He says then, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. A teacher of the Gentiles. Now, Paul was appointed principally to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He would have been the first to preach the gospel on European soil. So you can say that it was through Paul that we have the gospel in America today. Um, In Romans 11, Paul writes pretty extensively about his position as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he talks about this olive tree, that is the uh, church, basically the bride of Christ, this olive tree. And Jews, being the original olive tree, the natural branches, some, because of their unbelief, broke off. And God then grafted in the Gentile to that olive tree to enjoy the fullness of Christ to enjoy the nutrients that that root of the tree provided to the branches. And so, basically, he says to my Gentile friends in Rome, don't take this for granted. Don't take the grace of God and his goodness for granted. Because how much more you, if he already let these natural branches fall off, how much more could he let you fall off being grafted in? Um, And that should be a sobering reminder to us uh, not to take the grace or the goodness of God for granted. Now, verse 8, Paul is going to continue talking about prayer, and then he is going to shift into this topic of order in the church. And today we specifically get some talk on headship, and that's an interesting study for us to look at. Verse 8, he says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, he uses a definite article in front of men. He says that the men pray everywhere. This is his first shift into this topic of submission. Okay, he was talking about other things before. Now he's saying the men speaking of the leaders in the church, the heads of their wives, the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, he does say lifting up holy hands, but that doesn't mean that your hands have to be raised all the time when you pray. Um, No doubt the Jews favored this position. They would literally raise their hands and they would pray to God. They would lift their eyes, lift their hands. That doesn't mean that we have to do that whenever we come to God. Now, in America, we generally teach our kids to fold their hands, bow their head, close their eyes. Um, And I I think that's 
more for utility than anything else. If their hands are folded, they can't really do anything else with them. They can't be distracting themselves with them. Uh, So that is useful in getting kids to pray. And I find myself even if I'm kind of fiddling with something when I'm praying, just to kind of rein it in right there. Um, So it is useful. And folded hands, raised hands, um, it's, it's all useful. But the position of the hands is not what God is looking for. God is looking for the position of the heart. Um, and that is really, I'm going to say the heart of the matter, no pun intended. But that is truly where God's attention is directed. Uh, it's at the heart. So it doesn't matter as much what you're doing with your body. Of course, a show of submission is helpful for me to just kind of put myself in the right place when I come to God, my Father, the King of Kings, the creator of the universe. Um, But you can pray anywhere that you are and in any situation. It doesn't have to be out loud. So again, it's not the words that we say. It's the words in our heart. Um, We have to make sure that we are in a right position when we address God. Um, It doesn't seem fitting to me, the flippant prayers, kind of the the comedy prayers. um, That that does not sit well with me. Uh, When I address God, I want to do it reverentially. Um, As a father, yes. As someone that I can come to uninhibited, uh, there's nothing between us, but there's still a certain reverence that I pay God, um, not doing it flippantly or comedically. So it is more about the orientation of the heart than of the hands. Without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, Okay, now that's an important phrase right there because it tells you what all of this that we're about to read is really about. Okay, in like manner also. So we are going into this talk about women and headship. Uh, Now, headship is not a new thing. We We should know about headship in the Bible. Um, It's clearly laid out, and we'll go into more detail in just a second. In verse 9, he writes, In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly clothing, but which is proper for a woman professing godliness, with good works. He says, in like manner also, referring to what he just talked about with men. This is the good position of a man to be in. Praying. Okay, that is where a man should be. A woman should not be in the position of flaunting what they got, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> they should be adorning themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly clothing. Now, there is a certain way that a woman professing godliness should carry herself. She should not dress seductively um, and to entice her brothers in Christ. That is not fitting of a godly woman. 
Now, I want to be clear here that this is not a prohibition on looking good. We want you to look good, I promise. Um, And even an old barn looks good with a fresh coat of paint, right? So that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying don't look good. He's saying you don't have to look like a garbage dump to be a godly woman. And I'm thankful for that. But there is a line that you cross when you go from wanting to look great to wanting to look seductive or tempting, right? And I'm not going to tell you where this line is. I don't think that's really my job to tell you how to dress. Now, there may be instances where I have to step in and say, hey, ma'am, in the utmost love, please don't dress this way because you're you're disrupting the order of the church. Um, You're causing a disruption. But generally, I'm not going to tell you how you need to dress every day. Um, But listen to the Holy Spirit in this, because he will guide your heart in this matter. Um, if, If you get that twinge when you put something on, maybe it's not fitting, right? So the point is, your brothers in Christ don't need your help by dressing seductively to lure them into lustful thoughts. Your husband doesn't really need to be jealous because of other people looking at you, okay? And your future husband does not need to be looking at you for the reason that you look seductive, right? And truthfully, that's not how you want your future husband looking at you anyways, because if that's the reason he's attracted to you, then that's the reason that he'll be attracted to someone else in a couple years, okay? So that is not how a godly woman should be portraying herself to the outside. And again, Peter echoes this sentiment in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Now, this is not not just a, a prohibition of looking good. It's a warning against extremes. Now I'm going to read from 1 Peter 3 real quick. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Just very succinctly, Peter puts it. He says, don't let your adornment be merely outward. He doesn't prohibit outward adornment. He says, don't let it be merely outward. But that quiet and gentle spirit is worth so much to God. Um, He takes notice of that. Um, And that is what you want your future husband, your husband, um, to be attracted to a gentle and quiet spirit, um, among other things. Now in verse 10, he says, but, so in contrast to this idea of wearing crazy stuff to attract crazy people, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So these good works would come from inward adornment the character. And uh, James talks about faith and works going together. If this woman 
has a genuine faith in Christ, she is going to demonstrate good works. Uh, They're inextricably linked. The faith that is alive produces works. So it is proper for women professing godliness to do good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. This word silence in verse 11. It does carry the denotation of quietness. So it can mean literal quietness. But it also insinuates a removal from hurriedness. To just sit there peaceably. It also can describe someone who quietly tends to their own business without meddling in the business of others. Okay? Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. With all submission really sounds just like it, like just what it means, right? Um, With all submission. And this shouldn't come as a big surprise to us. Um, there is a headship ladder that is clearly outlined in Scripture. And it goes like this. It starts with the headship of Christ over the body, the church. Okay, and that is found in Colossians 1.18. Then it goes with the headship of the pastor over the flock. That's Acts 20.28. Then the headship of the man over the woman. That is supported by 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16, 1 Peter 3, and here in our text this morning in 1 Timothy. Now, please don't think that when I say this, um, that we don't want women to have influence in the church, because we do. We want godly women to have a godly influence, but it's just not in a pastoral role. It's not teaching the congregation. That is not the place of a woman. So the pastoral role is not for a woman, but there are roles that women are even more suited for than men. Uh, Teaching Sunday school, for example. I could not do as good of a job as these two gals and Karen do, right? They, They can do that much better than I am, and they're gifted for that. I am not. Um, I am gifted for this, and this is what I do well. Now, even beyond the Sunday school role, women exert a lot of influence on their children, and children are a wife's primary um, influence and mode of ministry, right? Um, Your first ministry is your own home. So while the man is head over the wife, the wife is head over the children. And that is her primary uh, responsibility and her primary influence. Now, one of Paul's reasons for prohibiting women to teach is kind of laid out for us in verses 13 and 14. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, But the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. 
Now, I will give you my two cents and just an observation that I've made, and you can do with it whatever you'd like. Okay, this is just me talking here. But I have noticed in my own studies that a lot of these aberrant religions and these cults that are formed are started by women. And I think that is intriguing, um, especially in the context of this right here. Um, Eve, she was deceived by Satan. Adam just went along with his wife. Uh, You see, the headship role was flip-flopped, and it created confusion in their home. Eve took the lead on taking the fruit, and then Adam followed Eve. That's not how God designed it. God designed the man to take the lead on things, especially spiritual things, and the woman to follow the man. When it gets flip-flopped, it introduces confusion. And obviously that was a problem in the church at Ephesus in this point because Paul is instructing Timothy on these things. When the curse was brought to, to the world, when man fell and sinned, God said that there would be a struggle for submission and for authority between the man and his wife. Um, And we see that at work today. And that curse is very much still active. Um, And we eagerly await for the time when that is no more. Uh, We will be delivered from it uh, someday. Now, that again, is my two cents with the observation of women starting cults. And of course, it's not every cult that's started by a woman. Uh, Men can just as easily be deceived as women. But here, Paul is saying, this is why I instruct you to not permit a woman to teach. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. And so the woman led her husband because these, this godly role was flipped. Now, verse 15, there are a lot of different interpretations, and some of them are just, you know, obviously wrong, and some, you know, are permissible. Um, obviously, there is one way that it was intended when it was written. Um, I'm not... sure which way that was, but I will give you some really good options. Now, verse 15 says, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. I do know that verse 15 is not saying that women are granted salvation through childbirth. Doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, how would the men be saved? I I could not get salvation if that were the case. So women are not saved um, as in granted salvation through childbirth. That's pretty cut and dry. It's not saying that a godly woman will be saved from the pain of childbirth. Just ask around. Uh, That is certainly not the case. It could be saying that women are saved through the childbearing referring to a special and specific childbirth, that of Jesus Christ. It could be meaning that. This interpretation makes the most sense to me, and you'll see why. It fits into the context of what Paul is saying. 
through the children, through the woman's offspring, her godly influence will be preserved. It will be saved into the next generation if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. That is the interpretation that I favor personally. Um, The wife has the opportunity to really influence her child's life. And um, while the husband's chief responsibility is his wife, uh, and namely to love her as Christ loved the church, the wife's chief responsibility is for the children, right? And um, right or wrong, we make snap judgments about parents based on the conduct of their children. You ever been in a restaurant, seen this kid crying out the wazoo, just very irreverent, uh, flailing all over the place. You make a snap judgment about those parents. And it's the same way if the child is really well behaved. You see somebody just sitting there, a little kid, just eating this food really peacefully. You're like, oh, I see what's going on there. Uh, Those are some good parents. So right or wrong, that happens. But I do believe that this is saying if the woman exerts her spiritual influence on her children in such a way that they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, then her influence, her godly conduct will be preserved into the next generation. So there we have it. And just to rehash for us again this last little part of the chapter, Paul gives us these characteristics of an ideal Christian woman in the church. And I'm going to go through them really quickly because we've already talked about them. The first one, modesty. In verse 9, he outlines this concept of modesty. In like manner also that the woman, women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, um, modest is hottest. And that is true uh, when it comes to finding a wife Um, there's nothing that really puts the distaste in your mouth. When you meet someone you think is awesome and you see the way that they dress and it's not edifying, it's not godly. Um, So keep that in mind. The second characteristic of a ideal Christian woman in the church is purity. And it says she professes Godliness. Godliness is one of Paul's favorite words. Uh, We see it over and over in the pastoral epistles. Um, And godliness is simply a shortened form of God likeness. So he wants this woman to be pure. Uh, Purity is one of these characteristics. The next is industry. He talks about her practicing good works. She practices good works, and later in this letter to Timothy, in chapter 5, verse 11, Paul warns about idle women who wander from house to house and give Satan the opportunity to lead them astray, to lead them into sin. Uh, Specifically, he's talking about the widows who are idle. Okay, so... He wants them to be busy doing good works, another characteristic. 
The last characteristic this morning is humility. In 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 40, Paul kind of amplifies this commandment. Um, And just as Satan got his foothold in Eden through Eve, uh, he warns that Satan can get a foothold in your household through a woman leading. Again, it's that switching of the roles. God designed men and women differently to fulfill these different purposes. Um, And that is extremely important in a Christian marriage. So we are going to continue next time in chapter three, and we'll get into these qualifications for leaders in the church. Um, And that is an awesome study and something I'm looking forward to. So let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed.